But let's back up for a second, because there seems to be something that throughout history, among many things, unites us. And one of the things that unites us seemingly is our love of a good love story, right? You know, we've got Romeo and Juliet uh, that you might remember studying. And why that's such a famous love story when the love ends up in suicide, I don't understand. But it's famous and we all had to read it in secondary school or at some point in our education most likely. If you move ahead a few centuries, we learned in the mid-90s that Jack and Rose had a love that just couldn't be held in this world or on the ship of the Titanic. Or if you moved on to the later 90s, uh, Ross and Rachel were destined to be together. Or if you moved into the 2000s, you had uh, all sorts uh, that I I won't even get, get into. But we seem to love love stories. You know, Casablanca, A Breakfast at Tiffany's. Again, it's a, kind of a strange one. And the more I watch of these love stories and the, me, the, the more we see of them, you realize often the stories that we're attracted to that seem to transcend time or at least a, a few years in the case of the current couple centuries we're in often have these tragic bits to them. Well, between now and Christmas, we want to look at the dual nature of God writing a story on our hearts and in this world that has to do both with his provision of love for someone as seemingly insignificant as Ruth. But we also want to look at the bigger story. Some of you went through the story last year in our church family And you learned about the bigger story, the story of God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time until the return of Jesus Christ. Because throughout time, God continues to love people that don't deserve his love. God continues to chase after, to seek and save those who were lost. And so between now and Christmas, we're going to look, starting with Ruth chapter 1, at this wonderful picture of redemption spelled out on multiple levels here in the book of Ruth. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time we have. Just to look briefly at your word. Thank you that we could celebrate communion together. Uh, What a cherished privilege it is to celebrate and remember our risen King, and to do so together as family. And again, Lord, quiet our hearts, uh, I ask. Speak through these words that you have given us in the scriptures, and may my words be only those that are pleasing to you and that lead us toward your throne. In this we pray. Amen. Love, something we talk about all the time. Um, in as is often the case in culture, much is communicated through how we advertise beer commercials, at least in American culture. So years ago, there was this ad campaign that showed these men looking at each other longingly. And, and each one of them wants this beer. And so they look at each other and they, they want so much to have it. And they just look and they say, I love you, man. 
And for a while, we thought that was this just great display of brotherly love, and that's wonderful. But we've devalued the word love throughout time to where it means that I want a beer, or I want this, or I want that, that love is a commodity. Uh, But as we read in our call to worship this morning, the value of love is immeasurable. When we look at the godly, agape love that he invites us into. And what do I mean by agape love? That love that never fails, always protects, always cares. That is patient, that is kind, that is gentle. That love that God has so richly bestowed upon us that he calls us sons and daughters of his through the beautiful work of his son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again victoriously for our sins. And all of scripture testifies to this. What happens is we often skip the Old Testament because there's a lot of confusing things in there. I get that. Leviticus isn't always the most exciting book to read. Why did that have to be written? But those laws, those rules for ceremonial cleanliness guided a people that were to show the world what it meant to follow a power bigger than themselves. And so we find ourselves in the book of Ruth. And to understand the context of the book of Ruth, we have to go back to the middle of Judges chapter 17. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, Israel was supposed to be what's called a theocracy. What that means is Israel did indeed have a king. Not an earthly king, though. Their king was to be God and God alone. They were to seek him in any and all circumstance for all things, for provision, for protection, and for guidance. They were to go where God led them and to be his people so that the world may see God had set apart a holy people and might respond to him. That was who the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were meant to be. That was why they were set apart. Not that they looked better than other cultures. Not that they were more special than other cultures. They were special because God called them to a specific purpose. To follow him and to show the world what it means to live for God. But they failed in that. And over time, God began sending them judges. These judges acted just as the name would suggest. Those that would act as God's mouthpiece among his people, judging right from wrong, mediating circumstances and proclaiming what God laid on their heart. They often had a prophetic tone to them. Uh, Samuel was indeed a judge as many others were judges before him. And so we come to this time, and in those days, Israel had no king. And so what did the people of Israel do? Whatever they saw fit. How different is that from today? When we continue to look at the laws guiding our culture and our land, and we say, we need to redefine these to fit what we want right now. Right? To... 4,000 years on, we still do these kinds of things. They're not 4,000, about 3,000 from this point. But you get the idea. 
And so what happens is we move into the book of Ruth. We look at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we find out that Elimelech uh, has a family. In the days when the judges ruled, and when the judges ruled, there was no king, and the people of Israel had begun to do whatever they saw fit. We've got that part. But there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Melon and Kilion. Now, that's all fine and good, and you will not be quizzed on these names. But there's some things we have to understand going on that a reading of all of the scriptures preceding it and many that are following it help us grasp. First... Elimelech and his family lived in a place called Bethlehem. Now, if you were with me last Saturday night during our church retreat, which you just saw the highlight video of, and by the way, mark your calendars now. Come to next year's retreat. We have a great time growing together. There's my shameless plug. We did have a good time. But we played Bible Jeopardy this year. And one of the questions was, or one of the answers was, this town means house of bread. And the answer, or the question to that answer was, what is Bethlehem? Now, it's interesting that a famine has come on the very house of bread. Why has that taken place? Well, it's pretty simple. If you turn your back on God, he's going to let you live with the consequences of your decision. The most ultimate love story of all is that between God and his people, continually drawing them back to himself. And like a loving father should do, sometimes that includes discipline. For the people of Israel, throughout much of the Old Testament, it continually included discipline. And when the discipline came in all sorts of different forms what would happen eventually? First, the people of Israel tended to try to fix it themselves, right? They would go off and do things their own way. Moses would strike a rock instead of speaking to it. Uh, others, uh, like King Saul, would not wait on the Lord and, and wait on Samuel for the sacrifice. They would do it themselves. And time and again, this pattern is repeated. And then when things get really bad, what happens? Oh God, help us. We have turned away from you. Please fix our mess. And that's a similar situation to what we find happening in the book of Ruth at the beginning. But we're not toward that part of dependence yet. Because what does Elimelech do? He doesn't cry out to the Lord, say, God, help. What does he do? Well, he packs up his family and moves to a place called Moab. Now, Moab had times in history, even in the life of King David, which followed this, and, and we'll, we'll see that coming through in the following weeks, where it was maybe a, 
a close neighbor. It was only 50 miles away from Bethlehem. But there were times when interests aligned. I wouldn't, uh, interests aligned. I wouldn't say they were allies, but they at least got along. But you need to understand some things about Moab that go beyond just that sometimes they got along. For instance, the people of Moab worshipped the god Chemosh. Now, that's just a fancy name for a god, right? Well, those that worshipped Chemosh were actively involved in human sacrifice, something that God would strictly forbid and always has and always will. That was never allowed. Yet the Moabites and the Ammonites were consistently involved in that type of worship of a false god. So right off the bat we know that Elimelech has sought out to go to a land where false gods are worshipped. Second, we know that throughout Israelite history, that when the people had become involved with Moabites, and in fact they had intermarried Moabites, thinking that that would be accepted in the time, they began, instead of lifting the people of Moab out of their sin, out of their brokenness, and pointing them to God, what happened? They adopted their lifestyle. They adopted their ways of doing things. We've seen this in all sorts of relationships, right? Where, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely or a good person gets around bad company and what happens? They start looking like those that are bad around them. Well, that's what happened to the people of Israel and it cost 24,000 lives. 24,000 Israelites were killed because of their sin of seeking the ways of Chemosh and of Moab rather than the ways of God. And where does Elimelech decide is a better place to go than the people, than the place of God's provision, even if it's difficult at the time? He runs off with his family and he goes to Moab. God, I've got this. I'll sort this one out on my own. You take a vacation. You take a break. And so that, right off the bat, we understand, wow, that's a risky maneuver. And when we look deeper, we see that Elimelech did some things that didn't model the way of following the Lord that God had given his people. And I think there's three things, uh, Warren Wearsby names three things that Elimelech did that we still tend to do today that we can learn from. First, he walked by sight, not by faith. He looked out at Moab, said, there's probably food there, I should go there. And we do that all the time. When a situation gets too difficult for us, we look for the easy fix, right? We look for what's right in front of us and hope that it will work out. Or we go around and we seek to find people who will tell us everything will be all right without seeking the very counsel of God, without spending time with him and his word saying, Lord, what would you have for me? And you want my honest opinion, at least for me, sometimes when I get to that point where I begin to fix it on my own, I don't want to seek the Lord because... I might not like the cost involved with following him. It might make me less popular, not that I'm very popular, or it might make me 
uncomfortable or I might have to change some behavior or some ways of which I live my life. And so instead of doing that, I try to find somebody that will support what I want to do. And then I say, well, that must be wise counsel and I move on. That's likely what Elimelech did. He walked by sight. He said, I see Moab is a good place to go. That's where I'm going. Come on, family. Let's go. Right? Eh, Didn't work so well for him. Well, how do we walk by faith? How How do we move away from what Elimelech did, walking by sight, not by faith? If we say God is writing our love story... Elimelech's busy chewing on, and I know many of you are going to comment that why is there not an apple there? It's a pear. Have you noticed at the bottom? Yeah. Where in the Bible does it say Eve ate an apple? So that was just put there just to quiz you and see if you are all stuck on it being an apple. It doesn't. And so we put a pear there just for fun. So enjoy that for a moment. But when we think about this in context... Walking by faith says, I am going to seek the counsel of God. And if he says, wait, I'm going to wait on him. If he says, go, and it is radical, I'm going. Because there is nothing greater than the one thing, than the very love of God in every ounce of my life and showing that love to the world. There is nothing greater than that story. It's how we celebrate communion. And it's how we're called to live our lives. But we keep trying to write it ourselves. But when we get back to saying, okay, God, my story is yours. I'm going to trust you with it. We begin to claim God's promises. That, remember what we were told, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you don't know how to pray, I will pray on your behalf. I will go to the Father who is in heaven and cry out to him for you. When you are seeking me, ask and it will be given to you. These are the promises of God. And we keep saying, God, you don't understand. My situation is different. Well, let's keep looking through Ruth and we'll find out that there's an awful lot of the story of Ruth in our lives today, good and bad. But when we walk by faith, we're willing to look at his word, claim his promises, obey his truth radically, and make the decisions that go with pleasing him rather than pleasing man. And sometimes that scares us because sometimes it means I don't know where my next meal might come from if I walk away from a job that isn't pleasing to the Lord. I don't know what to do in this relationship with a broken family member. But I know what God's telling me to do. You know, the list goes on. But the second thing that that Elimelech did that we've got to learn from before we, we even move into getting to Ruth and Naomi is he seemed to major on the physical and not the spiritual. He seemed to think so much that God couldn't possibly provide a way for him to live in Bethlehem. Even though God had led his people to this miraculous place called what? Does anybody remember where God led his people? It had a fancy name. It began with a promise. That was called the promised land. 
Wasn't confusing. This was not a trick question. I think you were all hoping for me to trick you somehow. God led his people to the land of promise. And what was his promise? You follow me and I will always provide for you. I will always look after you and you will be a light in a dark world more numerous than the sand on the beach and the stars in the sky. I will bless you and I will keep you and I will care for you and I will be all you need. And all God's people said, we know that to be true, but God, you don't understand. I'm hungry. I don't know what will happen if I lose. Fill in the blank. And that's exactly where Elimelech found himself. I don't want to villainize Elimelech because I'm not sure as holy as I seek to be, I'm not sure I would have made a different decision. I've got a family and if they're going hungry, wouldn't I want to try to find a way for them to eat? But I would hope that unlike what we see from Elimelech, that I would seek the Lord first. And then if he says, stay out of Moab or stay out of this situation, that I would run away from it. And for a lot of us, we go to whatever's physically pleasing right now in the moment. It's why pornography exists. Because rather than building a relationship that's pleasing to God and to man, we seek instant gratification. It's why much of the world suffers in hunger right now while us in the developed first world part of it have more than we can possibly know what to do with because we get bigger, but we haven't figured out a way as civilization to provide for those in need, even though God's word... Leviticus, remember that book that we often skip by, gave us very clear ways of how we care for the hungry, how we care for the needy, and how we care for the sojourner, the alien. You see, God had a plan to take care of a broken world. And he was always working toward redemption. But we have to go toward him. And we have to seek him first and his righteousness And what happens? All of these things will be added unto us. Isn't that amazing? If we do the opposite of what Elimelech does, what are we promised? That God will give us all we need. Will it be exactly what we want? Well, if we're truly trusting him, yes, it will. Because our wills are aligned with his will. It's how the apostle Paul, after being stoned, whipped, running away, having to endure physical, emotional, and all sorts of torture was able to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There was nothing greater than that one thing, to know Christ. I count everything but loss, but for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Elimelech counted everything but loss because he was hungry. And I get that. I get that it's scary to follow the Lord radically, whatever that may be for you. There are roughly 200 people in this room right now, which means there are roughly 200 different stories of the life God might invite you to. 200 different scenarios. 
but one common thing, radically living for his glory that brings the rest of the world toward him. That's what the Hebrew people were called to do. And that is the greatest love story ever written. And unlike Romeo and Juliet or Titanic, it does not have a tragic ending for those that call on the very name of Jesus Christ. He wins. And with him, so do we. And I would think that would excite us. Go back to sleep. Let's move on. The third point, what did he do? In so choosing man's way over God's way, and this is the part we don't like to admit, even as Christians, when we walk away from the counsel of the wise, when we seek instead the counsel of the wicked, you know who we honor? Satan. And it, it, it's that plain. I, I don't mean it to parse verbs here, but he honored the enemy and not the Lord. You know, Jesus told us, you cannot serve two masters. So if we choose to say to God that, you know, I'm going to follow you two-thirds of the time, but this one-third I'm going to keep to myself, that means that portion of our life is given over, if you're a Star Wars fan, it's given over to the dark side. And the more the dark side infects you, what happens? Well, ultimately you become Darth Vader. You know, there's a lot of spiritual truth in that metaphor because for us, it starts with a simple compromise. Compromise is the big word these days. And it starts with those simple changing the measuring stick. And that's a bit of what Elimelech did. He said, you know, this is what I'm assuming he said. I know God means well, but I I don't see how he's going to work. So I've got to do something. You know, that's the great man answer or the great human answer. And so he did something. But in so doing, it was exactly what Satan wanted him to do because it showed the world that you don't, that even the Hebrew people don't trust in the one true God. So how much of a God can he really be? You see, we keep thinking that we've got to compromise so the world likes Jesus better. The world doesn't need to like Jesus. The world needs to see that Jesus is the only way to live and that his way is better. And that's a drastic change. So what happened next? Well, they abandoned God's land and God's people for a land that were the enemy. Uh, And like I said, just in case you're wondering about these Moabites, they were descendants of Lot, who himself wasn't uh, a a great guy. Uh, But they were descendants of his from his incestuous union with his daughter. Okay, that's who the people of Moab came from. And then they were the Jews' enemies because they had, been, they had treated Israel horribly during their pilgrim journey from Egypt to Canaan. Who kept attacking them? Moab. There was this constant attack. And during the time of Judges, which is the time we find ourselves in, uh, Moab had invaded Israel and ruled over their people for 18 years. Elimelech ignored all that because in his mind there was something more important right in front of him. Oswald Chambers puts it in a way that I love. Uh, He says this. He says, The majority of us begin with the bigger problems outside and forget the problem inside. Let me read that again. The majority of us forget or begin with the problems outside and forget 
the problem inside, and that's the condition of our heart. And he goes on to say, a man has to learn the plague of his own heart. That would be the poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that have realized on their own, we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. Those that understand that and come with humility and meekness can see God solve problems in ways we never dreamt. He doesn't say it'll be easy. He never promises that. But he said he'll guide us toward a life of peace and contentment that transcends all understanding if we but trust and obey in him. So what happens next? Well, the long and short of it is that Elimelech and both sons die. So in Elimelech choosing to go off to Moab to save his family, he kills them. How they died, we don't know. Uh, The two boys had names that basically meant weak and frail. So whether they were born that way or that indicated all along that there wasn't much chance of life for them, they were stuck. And they weren't going to last very long, and they didn't. And this little while that they were going to go for turned into 10 years. Well, AIC has existed for 10 years. Woohoo. I've been here for 10 years and neither of those things feel like a little while. I got three kids now. I had one when I started. Uh, You know, a lot has changed and a lot continues to change in 10 years. And that is not a little while. They didn't turn and run back to God. But, and again, you've got to look more deeply. But Naomi hears from others I don't know who those others were, but I suspect that there were other Israelites living in Moab that had sought the same provision that Elimelech sought. Naomi hears there's food back in Bethlehem. Of all places, God has chosen to provide for his people. Amazing, isn't it? And he provides for his people right where he promised he would. And so without a husband... And with two daughters-in-law, Naomi makes the decision to walk back the 50 miles and to go back home. And at first, uh, Ruth and Orpah say, yeah, we're coming with you. We're coming. We're going back. And Naomi rejects that. And listen to what she says. And she veils it. But listen carefully if you think through everything I've taught you about the background of Moabites. May the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. But what comes preceding and following this is stay here. Don't come with me. Now that sounds very kind and compassionate, except for one minor problem. As we talked about in our last series an Israelite or a Hebrew person or a follower of Jesus Christ today is to care for the sojourner, the alien, and to show them the ways of the Lord. What is Naomi doing here? Sending her daughters-in-law back to false religions. She is sending them back to Chemosh. She is sending them back to the land where they might find another husband that will point them not toward the one true God, but toward false religion. 
And she's saying, hopefully that'll work out okay for you. Now, there's a second part to this dynamic that I want to make sure we understand as we finish up this part. And that's pretty simple, that uh, basically the Hebrew people, sorry, weren't supposed to welcome Moabites in, okay? No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Now, this basically meant that not that they couldn't come in to the land, but they couldn't go into the temple or into the tabernacle and and into the places of worship. And so Naomi knows this. And so in the back of her mind, likely she's thinking one of those great questions of the day. What will people say if I bring back two Moabite women that were wives? Then they'll all know that my husband and I gave our sons Gentile false God-believing wives that we disobeyed God. But if I go back on my own, maybe nobody will notice. You see what she's doing? She's hoping maybe to cover her tracks. Again, she's not trusting in God for redemption or help or provision. She's trying to fix it herself. And she's thinking back to this. What will people say? And you know what happens in verse 19 when they show up? All the women stirred. What does that mean today? Did you see who's with her? Did you see who's with her? Did you see what's going on? Why would they be there? What do you think's going on? That never happens today, right? No, that would never happen in a world we find ourselves in, especially not in churches. Or does it? And so Naomi's got all of this baggage that she's thinking about. And she, and I believe there was some genuine love between her because frankly, in the world we find ourselves in, mother-in-laws and their daughters-in-law don't always get along very well, do they? At least not on TV. You know, so this is all kind of surprising. So maybe Naomi's thinking about the best, but how she's carrying it about and carrying the name of the Lord isn't a positive. Yet we learn a valuable lesson from Ruth. And it's the lesson that I want us to finish on today because it is so powerful and it is so full of the love of God that we all need in our lives. And it's found in verses 16 and 17. And Ruth looks at Naomi and kind of basically says, stop it, woman, I'm going with you. But you know, on June 9th of 2001, a beautiful young woman looked at me and said these words to me and I looked back at her and I said those words to her. And I meant them. And I'm pretty sure she meant them too because she's still with me. But what did Ruth say? She said, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Listen to these promises. But here's the big one. Your people will be my people. And what's the next one? Your God, my God, I will trust him. I don't know how all this is going to work out because my life has been ripped to shreds. I had a husband. He dead. I could go back to my family. But instead, I am choosing to go with you and worship your God, the one true God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is a woman that looked out, said, pardon my French, but my life stinks. But God's got to have something better than living in Moab. And I'm going with Naomi. And I'm going to see what God has for me. And I'm going to trust him with every area of my life. And I'm going to take care of Naomi. And see, the amazing thing is, she didn't try to fix it all on her own. She didn't have answers here. She didn't know how it was going to work out. In fact, she says, where you die, I'm going to die. And there's the inference there that, well, that could be tomorrow. But she goes ahead. She was determined to accompany Naomi. She was determined to live with God's covenant people. She was determined to worship the one true God. In this promise that Ruth makes before Naomi and God himself, we find that she was faithful. She said, God, your way, your way matters. I'm going toward you. Did she know what was going to come? No. The Hebrew people, as they were wont to do sometimes, could have just kicked her out. She had no idea what would happen to her. But she went toward God and she went with Naomi. She was faithful to her mother-in-law which is what the people of God were called to do. Look after the widows. And so who does it? The Gentile. The one that didn't even deserve to be part of the covenant family of God. (laughs) But God, in his amazing ability to write the best love story of all, used a person like Ruth to change the world. What else? Kindness wasn't offered to Ruth. Her life had been one of bitterness. And Naomi even cries out, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Way to point people to God, Naomi. You're doing great right there. But Ruth doesn't say that. Ruth just kept walking. And she offered kindness. And she offered commitment. She said, your God will be your God. Your people will be my people. And I'm with you. Do we say that to God? Do we trust him with our lives even if we can't see how it's all going to work out? We like to say that we would. But yet some of us know in our heart of hearts there's a right way to go. Some of you, he could be calling to radical ways of changing the world in big or small ways, but we're scared. We talked in discipleship class this morning that one of the things that keep us from living the deeper, fuller life, reliant upon the Holy Spirit, is our fear of stepping out and trusting that God will care for us and will also care for those that we feel we might leave behind. It's why missionaries for centuries have said, I will let God care for my family. And I will go to a people that are in desperate need of a savior. And I will not compromise on that. I will trust him with that. So what do we learn? Well, 
Let's think about this as we wrap up week one of our love story. And I want to think about by saying that God is very much pro-woman, pro-Gentile, and pro-redemption. Listen carefully and see what comes out of this. Ruth was an outcast Gentile Moabitess. Three titles that no Hebrew person would have welcomed openly. Number one. The wife of Uriah, also known as Bathsheba, was an adulteress. How did either of them even become a part of the family of the Messiah? How? By the sovereign grace and mercy of God. Wearsby says, God is long-suffering toward us. He's patient with us, not willing that any should perish. He uses broken people to point others back to himself. Ruth was broken. Ruth didn't deserve to be swallowed into the family of God. But God used her not just to walk 50 miles back with Naomi, but God used her to be the grandmother of someone that was very significant in our heritage. Who was that? King David. And out of King David, out of a Gentile woman, not the only one, by the way, Remember, Bathsheba was also mentioned, and so was uh, this woman named Mary. Out of these women, the Messiah was born. Will we trust God with every part of our lives? Or will we be an awful lot like Elimelech and uh, and Naomi and say, no, I got to fix this and I got to do it on my terms? Because that is the ultimate question of what's called sanctification. Will we give all of our life to God and say, I'll do it on your terms and I will obey you radically, even if it hurts. And even when it hurts, it's still the best way to go. Or will I keep making compromises and hope you still bless me? By the way, he won't. God doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He says we'll get spit out. And that should be a wake-up call for us as Christ followers. I want God to write my love story. I have a beautiful wife, and I love her dearly, but that's not the love story I'm talking about. I want God to write on my heart and on everyone around me that there is only one way to live, and that is for His glory, His pleasure, and bringing others into that kind of relationship and trusting Him with the results but living radically for him and where he will go. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for Ruth, of all people that taught us something that even your chosen people wouldn't teach us, that there's nothing better than following you. And that we can trust you with every area of our lives. So God, I I confess, I'm barely aware of all the situations in my own life, let alone everyone else's in this room. But you are God, and you can handle all of us. And so I pray that this morning and that every day we would come to you, whether we are weary or whether we have it all figured out, and we would give you everything as a spiritual act of worship. 
and that our lives would show others the greatest way to live and that the lost may come to know you as their Savior. Protect us from the own disobedience in our hearts. Protect us from the own bitterness that swallowed up Naomi. And instead, help us to live out the fruits of the Spirit, empowered by you every day of our lives. Amen.